Hi, this is Dave Foreman once again with Whatever, the show that has absolutely no sense of direction. Uh, nobody's driving the bus, but we hope you'll be interested in it. And we've got a special guest interview coming right up. Okay, my guest this morning is Sandy Kursiva. Sandy and I go back uh, quite a ways. Sandy was the guy who stopped me from throwing clubs and cursing on the golf course and also stopped me from shooting 125 most of the time. So uh, I'd like to introduce him to you now. Sandy, welcome. Hi. How are you doing? Hey, terrific. It's uh, nice and a little frosty out here in Comox. Comox, B.C. Now you're making me envious. We've got uh, we've got a white world of winter still here in wonderful Burlington. Uh, Sandy, when did you decide to uh, pursue a career in golf? It's not something that... Uh, but most people do right off the hop. You know, let's go, little boys always say, I want to be a doctor or a fireman or something like that. When did you decide uh, golf was going to be your thing? Uh, well, actually, hockey was first, but then golf uh, was a deciding factor, actually, in Toronto. I was 17 years old, and I got to go to the World Cup, Canada Cup, with all the famous players of the PGA Tour and see your idols of Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, uh, Chiqui Rodriguez. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, traveled the hotel, the courtesy cars and all that type of stuff as a, you know, with my dad being a rep, I got to do that. And the, the you know, I got that taste of what the tour life looked like. Yeah. And I think I went home at that point in the next two years when I was working at a golf course at Rossmere in Winnipeg. I asked my boss if, uh, if I had the talent to turn pro. As a as a PGA member working a pro shop, uh, but the the uh, part of being able to play this game with top level still took a few years to come. I'm sure it did, uh, knowing what uh, the average guy uh, takes to get a, any kind of a decent golf swing. I know when I first uh, started, when you uh, rescued me with some lessons, um, I was really uh, really chopping. I'm telling you, and it, I was. I had so many things in my head that I was going to do when I hit that ball, and I'd end up missing the ball. Um, so, how long have you been? Have you been uh, the combination? Of, well, do you want to talk a little bit about hockey do you, first? Do you want to tell us about uh, why you're not you weren't playing on the Stanley Cup? Um, well, hockey it comes out of my family. Uh, my father played uh, senior hockey, but he had uh, the talent to play pro with Detroit. So him chasing the days of, uh, say, 1948 to 60 with Allen Cups, which was uh, just as great hockey in every town of Canada. And uh, you had to be pretty good to be playing senior on the verge of playing pro. My uncle John McCready won two Stanley Cups with Toronto. Everybody would like to hear that. Okay. Um, and my... One of my coaches, who was dad's best friend, Bill Juzda, uh, out of Winnipeg, oh, the, uh, won Stanley Cups. The Beast. The Beast, exactly. <laughs> and Morris Richard will never forget him. I guess. Uh, rest souls, both of them. I guess not. But uh, I had those two as my coaches from, from uh, age of 10 to 18 when I went to play junior hockey. So they gave me the tools to chase my dream of playing pro, and I did. I played in the Eastern League, which is the, the slap shot league that they made the movie. Oh, yeah, right, right. 
So the Hanson brothers were the Carlton brothers out of Minnesota. And I was Chicago property in those days. So then uh, I met a girl from Australia and hung up the clubs in when I was about 24 and went off to take on Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> you played uh, you played in Australia for a while. Um, uh, I I met your 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 wife. That, that was very unfortunate. Do you want to talk about Margaret for a minute? Uh, Margaret was a uh, great lady. She uh, was a nurse that left her hometown of Tamworth, uh, a farm town like Brandon, Manitoba type of thing, and traveled the world. And I met her when I was playing hockey in Fort Francis, Ontario. She was nursing. And uh, uh, funny enough, when uh, she said at the end of hockey season, why don't you come to Greece? And I said, well, why don't you come to Winnipeg? Because I've got to uh, finish my apprentice and uh, uh, she said what do you got to do there and I said well I'm a golf pro well uh, ain't anybody that's a golf pro <laughs> <laughs> let alone that the next uh, 30 years was, was the life of uh, living in pro shops and, and on the tour right. yeah but a great lady and uh, unfortunately passed away from cancer which uh Get into everybody's family. I, I remember when that happened. It was very unfortunate. It was such a, a terrible tragedy. And yeah. I, I guess that's uh, kind of the the way of the world. There's so many people uh, affected by that. Uh, yeah, and it's um, the the Australians when we were living there in in 2000. The um, they had a commercial that you know one out of three people will have cancer, and the other two are going to be affected. Wow. Which is a great statement in the last years of our lives. Yeah. Okay, you've been to uh, a few different parts of the world uh, besides Australia and Canada, of course. What's the most interesting place you've ever been? Well, I think that the two that not my really my golf. Well, my golf swing took me there, but not as a player. I got uh, another piece of my life where I'm a entertainer and a trick shot artist and entertain corporate people and uh, club events and I got an opportunity uh, way back in 205 to go to Dubai and in the days of then was uh, you know there seemed to be a crane every 10 feet in the sky at, at different heights and uh, they're building the world of Dubai, the, the Burj was there, the only seven-star seven, uh, hotel. Um, and I was doing a show for Nokia or Nokia, and it was a European uh, seminar for a week. And here I am, uh, got my skates on, my hockey sweater, looking like Happy Gilmore, and it's 100 degrees on the practice fairway. Uh, my rubber hose that I hit in the show has got to be put in the freezer to keep cold so it won't melt. Um, I said to my driver one day going to the golf course, I said, with all this building and this piece of land downtown, nobody's doing anything? He said, Sandy. They're going to build the tallest building in the world on this five blocks. And there you go today. It is, I think, unless somebody's beat them. But that was the start of Dubai getting built to what we see today on the, on the newsreels. The other one was I got an opportunity to go to teach in China for 
for two weeks and uh, and see how China's going to grow over the past 15 years with uh, with golf um, coming out of there. They're going to they're going to turn a lot of they got one professional, maybe a couple that uh, have reached the status of uh, going to the Masters, going to the U.S. Open type of thing. So those are a couple of highlights of my golf career in a couple of great big cities of going to Hong Kong and Dubai that, that my golf swing has taken me to. That's wonderful. If anybody hasn't seen your show, uh, I remember we had you entertain us when I was with the Manitoba Electrical League. And what Sandy does, the reference to the hockey skates and everything, uh, he starts his show by saying he's Canadian, puts on a pair of skates and a hockey sweater and a toque, and uh, does the whole show on skates, and it's so impressive. I don't know how you can even stand up on those things, never mind hit a golf ball. But <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, uh, it's a great show. And we had some uh, so-called world-class entertainers uh, come at different times because we had a golf tournament every year. But Sandy's show was by far the best. It was, uh, it was just everybody just absolutely loved it. And I, I had never seen it uh, since the days when you uh, – helped me stumble around a golf course. Uh, so so I didn't really know what she did. You know, I'd seen you hit some wild-looking shots just for fun, like mm-hmm. off, off three-foot tree branches and stuff. But um, the show was, was really quite spectacular. And are you still doing it, Sandy? Yeah, here we are at, excuse me, at 69 years old and <laughs> in a, a, a eight-foot driver and rubber hoses and two-headed clubs and stuff like that. Uh, which is fun to entertain, you know, the, the small fry junior golfer through to, um, anybody that doesn't play golf to have them laugh and giggle at, at the antics that I pull off. Well, I don't, um, I don't know anybody that's ever had a, a golf club in their hand or in their closet that wouldn't enjoy that show because it was, it was really special. Right. Yeah. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a great uh, run of almost over 20 years now that I sold, sort of put it together and sold it as a corporate gig. Um, it all started at Rossmere uh, when I was, you know, in that 15, 16 stage. And uh, we used to sit on a chair, hit it off your knees, uh, run at it like Happy Gilmore, uh, bounce the ball because Mo Norman taught us how to do that. And, and then, on tour, we would do clinics and finish off with a couple of trick shots to entertain, and then I kind of put the whole show together and the impressions and uh, and the, the fun of making people laugh hitting the golf ball. Yeah, I know, and it does make people laugh plenty. Uh, you mentioned Mo Norman, uh, one of probably one of the most eccentric uh, golfers to ever be a professional. Uh, and yet you say that his golf swing, I think I heard you say one time that it was one of the purest you'd ever seen. Yes, it's, you know, for growing up and watching this game since I was basically about 12 because of dad being in the golf business and seeing Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, all the best in the world, Gary Player, uh, Tiger Woods, um, you know, Greg Norman. Uh, it doesn't matter who's number one in the world, but as a ball striker and wanting to control those dimples on every shot that we have for hit in golf, Mo lived with the dimples. He uh, he was a different cat because of his uh, makeup, and he only lived to getting a golf ball and found the secret of 
hitting it straight when everybody couldn't even think about hitting it straight. He hit it 14 out of 14 fairways, 18 out of 18 greens, and he only decided to putt if he wanted to win the tournament or run second so he wouldn't have to make a speech. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of typical of him anyway, that last line you just said about wouldn't have to make a speech. He, he was That was kind of part of his character, wasn't it? Yeah, he... Um, uh, he, he was like the Rain Man, uh, the movie The Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. Right. Um, you know, he was a smart cat. He could count cards. He could he could analyze quick, uh, double talk so that uh, um, you heard what he repeated. Um, you know, he was he was out. Well, he's a legend because I think anybody that got near him of those days of playing. Uh, just said, we wish we get to that stage in our golf career because, uh, we would, we would win or we could make a living at this every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there have been a lot of, uh, uh, some interesting, some kind of odd looking developments in, in golf over the years, things to help you correct your swing and keep your wrist straight and all the, all kinds of gizmos you see. Um, but there have been also some interesting technological developments that I assume have improved the game. Is there anything you, you, you can think of that you find had more influence than anything else? Well, I think that, uh, Dave, from the days that you and I were sitting on the driving range at Tuxedo hitting yeah. balls with wooden heads and uh, yeah. and bladed clubs type of thing and only two shafts that, that we could choose from, run regular and one stiff, yeah. Um, you know, as what we all grew up and played with. And then in 1989-90, the paradigm shift came in that uh, uh, the woodhead was dead and the new big Bertha metalheads were coming, and now all a kid had to do was turn around and swing at that ball, and, and he made contact with the head where you and I had a one-inch piece of plastic we had to go to the driving range and practice to hit. So that, that that helped, and then uh, graphite met uh, metal, so it changed the club weight, and uh, uh, we get to swing something a little bit faster and flexier. That created uh, distance. Then the golf ball changed from a ballata, which was soft rubber, to the hard plastic that we hit today. So it was a switchover. The hammer of the woodhead. Squash the rubber. Now it's the plastic is hard and the, and the club face uh, uh, concaves and and uh, springs the ball out now. The one um, thing I sorry. The one thing I always noticed about uh, you know, and I got the opportunity a couple of times to uh, uh, play on, on a golf course in the company of a pro or two like yourself. Uh, you guys, uh, it was always hard for me to tell how hard you were hitting the ball. I, it it never was with me. I knew if I was swinging too hard, I'd be sweating. But uh, <laughs> you guys get up there, and you, you have the same sort of looking swing every time, and sometimes the ball goes a long way, and sometimes it uh, it just goes short if you want it to. And it, it, the swing always looks quite similar. That's always surprised me. Yeah, this, uh, the, the swing speed, uh, if if a person really analyzes the golf swing, it's only a half a body move, which means that you load it up in your backswing 
and you swing down to hit that golf ball at the at the base at six o'clock, let's say. And but the world of golf where it's the folklore is oh you've got to turn to your backside and then you got to finish with all your weight on the left side and and look like a poser right yeah. oh in the brain of the golfer they're just body turning to get to that finished position but they never ask themselves to strike the golf ball <laughs> the golf ball just gets in the way but it also goes left right and short oh I remember I remember that very well. <laughs> I think, as a matter of fact, you followed you. You were gracious enough to follow me on a couple of my search trips in the woods for my golf ball. When I was, <laughs> we, you know, and going back to those days of of our, you know, our technology wasn't as, as deep as what the kids got today in a a golf channel that uh, is is twenty four seven with information on the golf swing. You know, we, as teachers, you know, uh, let's check your grip and check your stance and go through the setup and then, okay, let's have a look at your backswing, downswing, impact, follow through, finish, uh, and give you the right focus for your swing at a split second and uh, develop from there. You know, I'd like to put in a bit of a plug for uh, there are so many golf pros around, across this country, of course, across the world, that, uh, that teach golf. And if people just knew the uh, how, how little of an investment it is when you come down to the, the peace of mind you get and how much you can enjoy the game, if you just play it um, decently, you don't have to shoot 69 to enjoy a game of golf, but you don't enjoy it when you're shooting 125 either. So that investment in some golf lessons is really, really cheap when you come right down to it because you can enjoy the game, you can enjoy the company, the people you're with. People didn't want to play golf with me when I first met you because I was, you know, using language that wasn't always appropriate. Uh, I threw the occasional club. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think to the average golfer, you know, the the time thing is I'm going straight from the house to the golf course and on the tee without any practice. The ones that play, you know, in a, a membership style of two to three times a week of nine holes or 18, and I look out this window after 50 years of being in the business and I'm going, you know, there's a driving range uh 50 yards away from the first tee, and they don't even hit a, a small little bucket to warm up their arms and get their mind focused on what they got to do for the next couple hours. And I always say to them, I said, you don't have to go over there with a driver in your hand. You go over there with a, a pitching wedge in your hand, and you hit you hit 50 pitch shots because nine out of ten people are missing the green anyway. And you gotta hit you gotta hit a pitching wedge ten feet, one foot, or a hundred yards. You know something. So that's that, the, that's the one club that Mo used to say in his shows when people say, "Is the driver the hardest?" He said, "No." He said, "It's only it only goes that far." But he said, "A pitching wedge, you gotta hit it a hundred hundred yards and one foot." <laughs> and then they, and then people start to think and go, "Yeah, well, if I got a ten ten, and we see it on TV every day." You know, the guy missed the green, he's got to get it up and down with a sand wedge or a pitching wedge. Right. So just one club, if you want to practice that one and the putter, and you'd be a hell of a player. You know, I my my father was 
terribly annoying that way. He'd hit it off the tee about 175 yards down the middle and then hit it up close to the green and chip on and, and putt. You know, the, like he uh, it, he never did hit the ball far. And meantime, I'd be following, I'd be chasing mine into the woods and putting for a seven, you know. And he, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how much of that game is common sense and how little we pay attention to it. Yeah, and and, and it's uh, you know you play the same golf course as as we did uh, in those days. You had your favorite track and the one that was close to home. And uh, it's amazing how many uh, statements are always out there. That says, I always hit it there, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I recall one line you said to me, and and I'll repeat it, whether it embarrasses you or not. You said. Uh, you said, Dave, don't forget the idea when you hit your uh, you hit your tee shot is not to just get it somewhere on the golf course. You said you should be aiming for a spot, right? And that goes with every shot, and and, and that and the the other one that you you can't do anything about the shot you just hit, so forget about it. Think about the next one. Um, those two yeah, you're right. That's one of those. You know, you got to build a theory of thoughts for your golf game because, uh, as I've always said, I can fix your golf swing in five minutes. Yeah. But would you like me to teach you how to play the game? That's different. <laughs> That's different. And you know, in those days, with you and I running together, and and Danny Stack uh, rebuilding my golf game for five years to go back on tour, uh, these are the things that we built a theory on, and it was. You know, uh, I remember my first lesson with him, and he hands me a pencil and a piece of paper, and he says, Dan, you have no idea about a golf game or a golf course. And I went, oh, okay. You know, I've been playing for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> what have I been doing? <laughs> ah, but, okay, this is lesson one of my journey and, and my new teacher, and he says, uh, Here's how you dissect the golf course. Here's how you find your target lines and how you find that spot where you're supposed to drive it to. And it's not about driving it 300. It's about hitting it and playing the game of golf like a chess set. What's your move on this hole? What's, what's your shot for this hole? And so that calms your, your, uh, mental of saying, I got a birdie this hole. Well, it takes three shots to get the ball in the hole for that birdie or four on a par five. And you have to have a game plan. And that's why when people watch TV and the caddy pulls out a book and the pro puts out a book and they're conferring notes and they're looking at their game plan and distances. And, and that's one of those things that the average golfer never, never builds in is, uh, shooting 90 or, or 80 or trying to break 70. You know, I, I've heard people, uh, uh, you know, broadcasters, golf commentators, and whatnot. And I finally, it finally got through my head what they meant when they said course management, because they all, all mentioned it so much, and mm -hmm. talking about how the really great players were, were really good course managers, as opposed to be just being able to hit the ball. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's true. I mean, look in life. I mean, Arnold Palmer and Nicholas for the Giants, they became off the golf course of management. And, and hired great people to build their image or their, their companies. Yeah. But they always had a good game plan. And, 
the same as I would teach a kid today or a girl that wanted to play the PGA Tour. I said, well, here's the formulas. And they, you know, and come to mind, I remember taking the formula that I had and giving it to Ian Baker Finch uh, as part of his journey to fame and fortune and uh, winning the British Open. You know, and uh, he understood that he had to have a game plan and a teacher and uh, inquire about all the information he needed to be a winner or just to play this game every week. Well, but bringing up that name now, you you have got Ian Baker Finch, of course, world famous. You've met an awful lot of famous and wannabe famous people. Yeah. Um, You've talked a little bit about Mo Norman and, and Ian Baker Finch just now. How about you? Got any other little stories in your pocket there you could share with us? Well, I, I one of the ones that comes to mind is uh, Lee Trevino, who's uh, you know another superstar of the game. And we were playing in the Aussie Tour, and it was the Victorian Open, which is a big event down under. And Bobby Shaw, who's an Aussie that has won on the PJ Tour in the states, says, "Come and play with Lee and I." And I'm going. No, I'm, uh, I got a game going with a couple other people and, uh, I can't, I can't bail out and go play with Lee. So, I don't know, let's throw those guys away, come and play with us. And I go, no, I can't do that. So we were crossing the, the fairways of, of playing and, uh, and we stop and shake hands with everybody and Bobby says, this is Sandy Kersiba from, from Canada. And, oh, he says, so you're the, Son of a gun that didn't want to play with me, <laughs> and I look at Bobby and and uh, everybody's laughing and so it was probably the best thing because after that every time I turned around Lee would hey Sandy get over here and and do this or do that and gave me a couple of great tips in in the game of golf and I had more fun by not playing with him because he spent the whole week you know needling me and. Uh, and having a having a laugh that I wouldn't play golf with them. Building a bit of a friendship at the same time, that's great. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And as I walked away from that handshake, and I said, Billy said to me, who's Billy Dunk was my mentor on tour, 90 course records, uh, played with these guys at the high level in the 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. You can play with me any time. Why didn't you go and play with Lee? And I said, well, I don't want you to call me names. And then I kind of stopped and I looked at Boschman, Bobby, who's a Canadian and, and became commissioner of the, the Canadian tour. I said, that's right. I should have gone. And Bob looks at me and he said, what? He said, I remember that time we played the PGA in Edmonton and I lined up a game with you for the practice round and picked me up at the airport. You get in the car and Bobby says, I'm not playing with you today. And I said, well, the guy better be pretty good and better than me, whoever you're playing. He says, yeah, I'm playing with Arnold Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. He said, no. I said, how did that happen? He says, I just happened to be going through the locker room this morning before I came to get you, and I had enough nerve to say to Palmer, have you got a fourth? And he says, I don't got anybody. Come and play with me. No kidding. Yeah, so things like that that, uh, you know, uh, you run across on the tour days, and uh, Frank Beard was another one from the 60s that I watched as a kid, and he beat Nicholas for player of the year and all that stuff. And I'm going to the first tee with Margaret to play the same thing, the Vic Open. And uh, 
I hear this voice saying, hey, uh, do you mind if I join you? And I turn around and it's Frank Beard and I'm going, oh, man. <laughs> you know, and I'm, Davy in those days, I'm hitting it sideways and shooting 85. So, you know, like, why do you want to play with me? Yeah. And and then by the time we got down the first hole, we knew 25 people together because Dad was selling power built in those days. And I knew everybody in Louisville, Kentucky. And, and uh you know, we became a, a friendship for the next uh, week before he flew out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the other ones from New Zealand was Bob Charles, another British Open winner. And oh, a left-hander. I, I like Bob Charles. Hander, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Kel Nagel won the Canadian and the British Open in his career. And uh, I go into uh, the dress locker room and I said, is anybody going into Auckland? And I hear this voice. Yeah, I'm going. I go down and I turn the corner and it's Bob Charles. Oh, and I'm going, you know, I'm 24 and he's 34 or 5, whatever. And because uh, everybody's sort of that 10 years that I've been watching him. So we get in the car and I'm going, okay, this is going to be good. What are we going to talk about? Well, we talked about, he said, where are you from, kid? I said, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Newton's hometown. And I said, yep. He says, so we talked hockey, football, baseball, a little bit of golf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was so out of sync for thinking that a Kiwi wouldn't know anything about hockey. Yeah. That's so nice. that was, and Peter Thompson, five-time British Open champ. Um, you know, that was the, the field. I mean, we're star-studded guys that beat the world and, and won the major championships of the world. I think Peter Thompson was one of the most underrated golfers ever because i i followed him um and and you as a matter of fact around the the pga when they played at the st charles in, in winnipeg yeah and uh the guy i was walking with said you know that guy's won the british open five times yeah and i said come on I, i've never seen this guy before but i i hadn't heard of him and i i wasn't a, a real neophyte when it came to golf i used to read a lot on it and everything but yeah he was, and he was so cool to watch, you know, because he had such a controlled game. Yeah, he he was, uh, and there again, that smart man that uh, maneuvered himself around the, the golf courses, had the patience to go the four days that you have to learn how to play for four yeah. straight days and keep your nerves under control. Yeah. And a simple swing, you know, like he took it back, struck the ball, and kept it in play, and and uh, you know, one in the British opens because the Aussie golf courses in those days were very similar and uh, he ventured into the States and I think Peter won something like 60 tournaments around the world and then he, he goes to the senior tour and, and uh, I think he won five one year and like he made more money on the senior tour than he did with the five British Opens put together. <laughs> Isn't it t- the way times change, you know, I heard that famous uh, Gene Littler talking about what he the amount of money that he won compared with the amount of money that Phil Nicholson won. On exactly. Games, uh, it, was, it was amazing. It yeah. Was amazing. One, one story about Peter Thompson, because I got to meet him in the early days when I was first started down under. And we went to Port Augusta, which is north of Adelaide, and uh, Sand Green, sand, Dirt Fairways. Uh, we got $500 to play for, and there's 50 golf pros. And you you got to shoot 66 to win first place. And I'm signing in at the registration table, and 
I turn around and Peter Thompson's standing behind me and I said, hi, Pete. And he says, hi, Dan. And I said, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, you know, British Open champ. Why would you even come and play for $500 on a dirt golf course? And he said, Sandy, it's not about the golf game. It's about the people in this town. They put you up, they feed you, and they entertain you, and it doesn't matter if we win or lose. You've come to a great place, and I've been coming here since I was 16 years old, so I'm here again. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a great attitude, though? I guess that's why uh, yeah. that's why fans, uh, when they do get to know a, a professional golfer, that they have that, uh, that attachment that lasts for a long time. Once you become a fan of somebody, you're a fan for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... and uh, that's part of my life of playing the tour or, you know, even being a club pro and going to play in somebody's event year after year, you get to a point where you got to see Freddie and you got to see Dave and Jimmy right. and all the guys that have been part of the event for 10, 15 years that you want to sit down and have a drink with and reminisce or go out and have a great round and win the tournament again. So, you know, that's the beauty of this game. And uh, a high handicapper, uh, I won't mention you, but a high handicapper <laughs> that <laughs> we, uh, you know, we had our fun of playing in the Optimus Clubs and, and, uh, Crown Life things that, you know, it takes all three different styles of, uh, amateurs and, and handicaps to go out and enjoy this game. I, I will tell you one, one story because I want to get this in because uh, I want everybody to hear this just before we, we kind of wrap things up. Uh, yeah. My dad retired and pretty much didn't know what to do with his uh, with his life. He was uh, he was relaxing and supposedly enjoying himself. And and one day I took him out to a golf driving range, hit some balls, and then we went over to your course, which you were you were handling the pro duties there, and we played one round. And he bought clubs, uh, shoes, cart. Uh, and and then you you spent a fair bit of time with him, just teaching him how to hit the ball. Yeah. And and you know that man it changed his entire life. He lived till he was ninety four, and and played golf right up until about the time he was eighty five. Right. And just absolutely enjoyed it. It was almost like my mother said it's like he was going to work. He <laughs> he had to get out there and on the golf. Yeah, I remember those days. That was fun. You know, that's, that's the beauty of, of, of a lot of our talents as being golf pros that to see the enjoyment of a, of a four year old to a 94 year old eyes light up when they strike it or, you know, get the bug to play this game. And the effect that they, that being able to play the game had on the rest of his life was amazing to me. Yeah. It made the rest of, of his time very enjoyable. Yeah, and he also kept on meeting people, which you do. You know, somebody says, "Have you got a book?" Because I, my guy didn't show up, that sort of thing. A lot of friendships. Yep, and that, yeah, exactly. And I look at that when I look at golf as a whole, and and I go, "Okay, these this game was put on earth to take care of of many things, like go for a walk, uh, meet people, you retire, go find a job." At the golf course, there's a whole bunch of people that are in the same boat you want to hang out with and enjoy whatever's going on in life. 
It's amazing. I, I really uh, I really couldn't believe the impact again. I, I always grew up with the, with the, the jock thing going through high school of golf. That's an old man's game, you know. Right. And that sort of thing. Well, if it's an old man's game, go out there and hit a few balls <laughs> and see how much your, your strength and bulk has to do with the game. But, yeah. Um, anyway, I, uh, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I still want to know where, where you go from here. Are you going to stick with, uh, you going to stick at Comox, BC? You like it, right? Uh, well, actually, I'm on the move. Uh, you know, part of life is that there's uh, family, there's friends, uh, connections, uh, health, and, and lifestyle. And uh, this being my 50th year and, and uh, sitting here in Comox, which has been a great couple of years, uh, but I am actually moving home next month. I'm heading back to Winnipeg, where my father is 91 this month. Uh, daughter and son-in-law just got married. Uh, you know, as you know, Dave from Winnipeg, all my family's there. Mm-hmm. And I kind of said, you know, I'm ready to go work for somebody else and, uh, see what talents I can help them with. And then I'll be back in Winnipeg with, uh, my connections and, and family and, and friendships. So actually we're heading to Clear Lake, Manitoba and, and, uh, gonna work for, for Clear Lake Golf Course. That's a golf course that not nearly enough people know about because that's a real beautiful course. Yeah, it's a federal, you know, it was built along the lines of uh, the days of Jasper, Banff, uh, Waska Sioux. Yeah. Well, even Falcon Lake was provincial, but it, the architects of those days were all based on the same uh, layout. And mm-hmm. and when you walked on the tee, it was like, oh, man, I'm just playing one fairway and that's all I can see. If and uh, the settings, you know, at the lakes were tremendous. And then, you know, Gasper Banff were put into the Rocky Mountains, which are world famous. If I'm not mistaken, and, and my memory's not perfect by any means, but it strikes me, I think one of the cart paths at uh, Clear Lake is a switchback, is it not? Yes, it is. It's 17th. Uh, <laughs> the 17th hole is a uh, par 3. And you're hitting off a bluff, and then the cart path winds down a couple of different ways to get down to the bottom and at the creek level. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you feel like you could just drop the ball in the green, but you still got to hit a, a eight iron or nine iron to get there. <laughs> well, uh, certainly everybody, we wish you well in your uh, in your future endeavors. I'm very happy about Facebook because that's how you and I got back in touch after all this time. Well, that's true. I mean, I love Facebook because the days of Australia back in the 70s and 80s would cost an arm and a leg to phone home to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And now I can get up and, and send out a note to, you know, uh, a thousand people around the world saying good morning and how are you doing and, and stay in touch. Yeah, I know it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- thanks again for doing this. And uh, I'm sure Winnipeg's going to enjoy having you back because there are a lot of people there that know you and remember you well, as well as your family. And, yeah. Um, and good luck in your in your future uh, your future endeavors. And I hope to talk to you again real soon. Great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for the, for the opportunity to be on your show. Okay, that's it for this time around. I want to thank you for being with me. This is Dave Foreman. And I'll be back with another edition of Whatever in a week or so. I'll look for you then. You'll find us all over the podcast network. Meantime, please check out Amazon and uh, check out for my wife's trilogy of her first three novels. Her name's DT Man. 
She writes romance adventure stories, and her first three novels are Legend of the Photographer, The Legend Continues, and The Legend Complete. Three novels, all the stories of Stephen Legend and Ricky Reagan, the photographer, and their friends, relatives, and so on. It's a very, very interesting trilogy. I really think you like it. So check it out on Amazon. It's available in paperback or in ebook format.